Hello, my name is David Davis from VMWareVideos.com, and this is the uh, second episode of the new VChat. And uh, I'm Simon Seagrave from TechEd.co.uk. And I'm Eric Siebert from vSphereLand.com. Uh, thanks for joining us on this new uh, video cast covering virtualization news and, and uh, how, to, how to get things done in the real world of virtualization. Um, so we have a, a list of some cool topics today. Uh, the first one uh, we want to talk about is ESXi. Um, I know VMware is really uh, pushing people towards ESXi. They have a new uh, course, like transitioning to ESXi, I saw in VMware Education. And so we wanted to ask the question, is it really ready for prime time? Um, what do you think, Eric? I think it, it's pretty much there right now. Um, there were a lot of missing features, which I felt were kind of holding it back, that it didn't one-to-one -one compare to ESX, and you always had to figure out if that feature was supported with ESXi. But I think VMware put a lot of effort into 4.1 to make up for all those features that were missing and um, got them added, you know, things like the Active Directory support, the boot from SAN, um, kind of some important things that... Um, that we're kind of missing. And um, so I think feature-wise, it, it's pretty much there. Uh, from a management perspective, um, I think they, they've gotten better. They officially support tech support mode now, which I think is a good thing. Um, you know, they've changed some of the the options in that. There's a couple little things I'd like to see in there, like to be able to um, – the ability to manage virtual machines from that, uh, the direct console user interface, the little graphical interface direct from the, the console, you know, be able to power on, power off VMs and things like that. Yeah. But I think at this point, I, I don't see why anybody would be, you know, shy away from using it, that, you know, the features are there. Um, the management, it takes a little bit of getting used to the different management styles. There's no more service console. Uh, the, the, the vSphere COI is what you have to use. So, um, so I think I think it's there, and I think it's you know especially with now the VMware coming out saying there is no more ESX the next release. You know I think people need to really take it seriously and start and you know, start using it, adopting it. I think it's definitely a good time to start using, uh, getting used to the um, the different sort of management tools. I mean me personally, I've, I've started using the, uh, the the vSphere management uh, assistant or the VMA uh, a lot more now. Because um, going forward, I mean, that's that's how predominantly from the command line you're going to sort of manage things. So uh, I, I probably started and made a conscientious effort uh, a couple of months ago to start using that. And uh, it's great. I'm sort of flying around that now. And uh, it's definitely worth the, worth, worth the investment. Uh, what, what about you guys? Have you uh, looked into VMA yet at all? I have a bit. And... There's a bit of a learning curve to it. I know, David, you did some articles on um, getting started with it, didn't you? How to actually, you know, the authentication and setting up the servers and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it takes a little bit of getting used to it at first. Um, I think I read that besides the Active Directory authentication in, you know, ESXi, now they're adding Active Directory authentication to Vima, which I think would be, you know, a really cool thing. I haven't tried that myself yet to see if it's really, you know, working. But, um, yeah, it takes a little bit of getting used to, you know, at the start, but... Um, from there, you can you know do a lot of things like I know uh, Simon Long has an article on using Vima to consolidate um, logs using syslog, um, so that's something I'm going to try as well. But yeah, it's it's good. Just there's a learning curve still. Yeah, it definitely. And um, you know, and I, heard, I think I read something else too that they removed the fast pass. Um, ability from this version of the, the VMA, um, which basically allows you to pass credentials easily um, without having, I, I think you can edit a file before, set up the credentials so you can easily pass them to all your hosts. And I thought I read somewhere in somebody's blog, 
blog post, I think it was William Lambs, that they removed that from this um, this release. I don't know if it was from a security perspective that they didn't want clear text credentials or lying around in a configuration file or um, what the deal with that is. But, yeah, it's all, once you get all the configuration stuff set up, I think that's the most difficult part is getting the host and configuration, the authentication stuff set up. And then, you know, once you have all that going, you know, it's basically just knowing the commands and the usage and how to, how to use everything and uh, the proper syntaxes for everything. So how much longer do you guys think that ESX will be around? Well, my, you know what, I think in the blogger things that we went through, they told me or they told us that the next major release, which, and they also stated next year, so I, I don't know if that was just uh, how accurate that was, but um, so, you know, if that's true, it, it's, you know, the, the clock is really ticking, and there's less than, you know, 18 months for uh, ESX to still be around. There's still a lot of diehard people that like ESX, like being able to, um, you know, get the more hands-on type of management that a full OS gives you inside of the uh, inside of the host. Um, you know, but I, I think, you know, it's just its days are numbered. Why, why drag it on? Why keep going with ESX if you know that it's not going to be around in the future? And if you don't adopt ESXi, you're limited to being able to upgrade um, in the future to future releases. So, um, at this point, I, I'm looking at all the stuff I have, and I think, like I said, 4.1 is at the point now where um, it's definitely worth um, using, you know, whereas before you had to deal with limitations. So, um, so I, I'm all for going to ESXi now, and, um, you know, and I think in, in each release, probably in the next release, it's going to get even better. I think they'll improve the management. They'll improve maybe some of the few little shortcomings that it has today. So... Um, I got servers right now. I'll probably start doing um, heading over to uh, ESXi. Um, VMware gave a lot of good information about um, why you want to go to ESXi, but they haven't really given any information on how to go to ESXi from ESX. You know, if you have ESX, ESX hosts, how do you actually convert them to ESXi hosts? So um, I think they have a webinar coming up soon that kind of will details that. I'm also actually doing an article on that as well to kind of show people step-by-step step how you want to take your ESX hosts and move them to ESXi. Um, I think in most cases it's basically just uh, you know a full reinstall, and uh, yeah. moving VMs around is, is the easiest way to do it. So, I mean, I, I I've been using ESXi in my lab environment now for for a good 18 months. Um, the reason being, I mean, is around portability because I sort of uh, flip between different versions of ESX all the time. Uh, for me, installing ESXi onto a USB key, uh, if I want to, for example, go from 3.5 to 4 to 4.1, uh, it's it's just a a matter of pulling out the USB key, sliding in another one. Powering up the server, um, so that that, that that was my sort of incentive for, I guess, sort of being an early adopter of uh, ESXi um, in a, in a non-production environment. Yeah, that's a, definitely a great feature. Is uh, the key? I got keys with ESXi on them. I just throw, when I I've got my new server. I already had ESXi on there. I just threw that in there and booted off it, and I was right in business. Um, that and uh, patching. I mean, you can't argue against patching with ESXi. It's super simple. You don't have to deal with, you know, getting your patches in the right order and, you know, kind of dependencies and all that. Patching is, is so easy with ESXi. It's just a huge advantage in itself to, to using it. And there's a yeah, lot fewer yeah. patches as well, right? Yeah, because they're not patching all of the other components in the service console. There's not more code there to, to actually patch. Right, right. I guess one area um, that is going to be impacted by going to a service console's um, uh, environment will be those vendors that actually use the service console in ESX at the moment. Uh, 
you know, for example, any any companies, uh, you know, uh, for example, antivirus backups that, that may be hooking into Service Console. Uh, I guess they're going to have to be looking for alternative alternative ways to uh, do what they're doing at, the, at present. Oh, they're, they're I mean, admittedly, you know, probably the amount of companies out there doing that, you could probably count on on, on your hands. But uh, you know, definitely something they've got to uh, pay attention to, I guess. Yeah, they should have been looking a long time ago, though. It's a little late in the game now. There's uh, those APIs have been out there for a while that you know that and I, from what I've seen, like at least in the backup space, uh, most people have jumped on to the the API route and uh, kind of ditched agents in the service console on that. So, um, but yeah, that, that's always kind of been the holdup. You know, VMware has even stated that that getting all their vendors um, out, out of using that that model and, and using APIs was always a challenge to you know getting rid of ESX and the service console. You guys want to move on and let's talk about power monitoring, new in vSphere 4.1? Sure. Okay. So Sounds good. Basically, and I think, Simon, you're the one that found that feature. You started a thread in the uh, the beta forums um, about uh, when you go into performance monitoring, a new feature um, on a drop-down uh, kind of counter is called power. You can actually measure the power usage of your, your virtual machines and hosts. And I think it was it watts and joules, was it? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, actually, if I'm honest with you, I never actually got it going in my uh, lab environment. So it was uh, it was a new setting that I sort of stumbled upon at the, uh, the time and uh, tried a few workarounds and what have you to get it going. But um, but uh, yeah, yeah, unsuccessful, unfortunately. I, pretty much down to uh, you know the uh, the service I use in my lab environment being pretty entry level. I think. Yeah, it's, uh, that was quite a good feature. I was kind of persistent with it. We had a thread open with one of the developers um, who was kind of helping us with getting that feature working, and I kept telling him, well. How do you get it to work? I can't get it to work at all. And eventually he came out with um, what we knew about the advanced setting. There was an advanced setting that you have to set under um, configuration software, advanced settings, and then you select power. And I yeah. believe that it was called power.chargevms. You set that to a value of one, and then you're, um, that enables the feature uh, to, be, be, to be able to collect the, uh, the information from the servers through uh, IPMI. Uh, but that wasn't enough. Um, we found that you had to actually edit. There's a, a file, basically a configuration file, that's kind of unique to um, each vendor server that basically tells it what the IPMI sensors are. Um, and that file is located in a USR share sensor than VMware. And um, it was basically has a, a syntax to it where you put in a, a line like default, colon power, colon HP, colon ProLiant, um, and then the uh, IPMI sensor names, and then colon watch at the end. And once I did that, I was able to get it to work. Now, VMware doesn't really – I think it's kind of more of an experimental feature, and VMware doesn't want people really to be hacking those, those files. You can hack it to get it to work. Um, but what their plan is um, is having OEMs produce their own configuration files, and they'll either send those to VMware to include into vSphere, or um, they'll ship them as part of their uh, OEM uh, TGZ files, um, that'll have the, the information necessary to read the IPMI sensors of those servers, and um, so I, I actually got to work on mine. It was it was pretty cool because you could see exactly the number of watts a VM was drawing. Um, it gives you kind of another perspective on uh, the usage of the VM. You know, you have the other resources, but to see the actual um, power usage um, is kind of neat to be able to see you know exactly what each VM is using. You can also see that on a host basis. Um, so that's definitely a neat feature, and I think David, you had mentioned that, and I was playing with it in the beta, so it um, it may have improved in the final release. And I think David, you were saying that you got it to actually work uh, without doing anything except enabling it um, in the the GA version. 
Yeah, in fact, um, you know, I just loaded 4.1 uh, GA, and honestly, I didn't do anything. Um, I have a Dell uh, T610, actually a couple of them, in the lab, and I went into uh, the performance tab, and there's a switch to the power graph, and then underneath that, there was the uh, usage in watts that was just being graphed by default, uh, running around between 85 and 93 uh, watts, and I can see it, it, it moves up and down as I do things on the on the host. Um, I can also add in um, items here on the graph for uh, energy usage and a cap, which I haven't played with yet. But uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. And then if I go into configuration under hardware power management, it says there I have an in enhanced Intel speed step and I'm running the high performance uh, power management policy. So that's something I need to play with some more, but yeah, it cool. looks pretty cool. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Must be quite accurate as well because the, uh, the the readings you were giving there, you know, 80, between 80, was well, 83 and 90 watts. Uh, that, that, that's actually quite reflective to what what I'm seeing in my lab for a, for, for a similar specification machine as well. Uh, I've actually got a little power meter I plug into the wall and and generally it fluctuates between about sort of 80 and 95 watts. So that's that sounds uh, that sounds about right. Hmm. And David, you had mentioned that the um, under the um, configuration hardware power management, the um, enhanced uh, speed step, and um, Intel has another their version too of it. But um, that's basically for the dynamic voltage and frequency scaling that allows you to um, allows the CPU um, to change P states, which is the processor state, but it'll change the actual um, CPU megahertz and the voltage of a processor to meet demand. So if you have a low demand, it's not going to scale that processor all the way up to the highest voltage it can and to the um, megahertz. It kind of scales it down. And allows you, it's basically another power saving feature that allows you to save even more power. Now, yours is set to a high performance, which means it doesn't really do anything. It's always at the highest um, actual voltage and um, megahertz that it can be at. Uh, to be able to change that to um, where it's, it actually can be variable, where it will change it up and down. vSphere actually will control it. You have to go into the BIOS of the server and uh, under a power control. It's in different places in different BIOS. And in HP, I think it's under, like, power control. And you want to set it to, like, OS control mode. Um, there's other modes like low performance where you can set it to um, always be at the low state or high performance where it's always high, which is the fault on most servers. But the OS control mm -hmm. mode allows the operating system, or in this case the VM kernel, to control that, um, the, you know, basically the P states of the server to, uh, to basically save power when it, when it can. So mm -hmm. it's another great power-saving feature that um, is actually, you know, when you couple it with DPM, can, you know, save you a lot of money, and, and well, especially in larger environments or uh, VDI environments where you don't have a lot of usage at, and during certain hours. <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty cool. I mean, I've got a, uh, I've got a new server that's going to my lab. It's been sitting in the hallway in a box for ages. I've been saving up for it. So it's, uh, I've got a new DL360 G6. So, uh, oh, dear, I'm really nice. looking forward to, um, rolling that into my lab. And that's probably one of the first things I'm going to test on it. Cause, uh, yeah, like you guys were saying, a really exciting new feature on that. And, uh, yeah, I want to give that a try. So kind of like that one insurance company has those commercials where they say they saved you money on your car insurance. Maybe VMware should have some commercials that say they saved you money on your electric bill, these new features. <laughs> I'm sure it would be in the uh, future marketing strategy there somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that's always been the, you know, the big one of the big selling points of virtualization is you know you definitely cut down on energy costs, whether it be mm -hmm. you know power and you know cooling. So. Um, it gets better and better, you know, especially with the new feature that they keep adding, you know, to be able to, you know, take that even further. So, Eric, what's the difference between the hardware power management and the software power management configuration? Well, the software is for DPM, 
And uh, the software configuration is basically where you define your uh, the settings for your, um, they call them, uh, I think, the BMC, the Baseboard Management Controller, which is basically just uh, like the ILO board and the HPs, uh, the Drac board and the Dells, um, which basically operate via the, the IPMI. And um, that's where you basically enter the, usually have authentication information for that. So you enter in the username and password to be able to communicate with that board so it can go and um, actually that's how it powers off the server. It goes through that IPMI to power off the server. So it'll be able to do that in each credential. So under software power management, that's where you define your credentials for that uh, baseboard management controller. Um, so DPN can actually power off and power on the server using the, uh, the IPMI power controls that are available on the server. And the hardware, of course, is for the DVFS, which just uh, scales the, um, the CPU and uh, frequency and voltages. Okay, cool. Cool stuff. So, Eric, I saw you made a post about um, helping uh, VMware admins out there justify going to VMworld. You created a, a sample letter that they could send to their boss. Um, tell me about that. Yeah, basically, you know, it's the same old thing every year, especially with the economy the way it is, um, that everybody has a hard time um, getting the money, the financing, to, to be able to afford um, going to VMworld. You know, it's not just the conference cost itself. Um, it's all the travel expense. And San Francisco can be a pretty pricey pricey town to, uh, you know, get rooms and stuff like that in. So it can add up to some significant money once you add everything up together. You're probably talking, you know, almost $4,000 um, between the travel and the conference costs. But... Uh, to me, it's hands down the best um, training, networking, all that stuff you can get. Um, you know, if if you're having trouble getting justification for it, um, you basically want to go to your whoever approves that, you know, a trip like that, and kind of show them the benefits of look at all these sessions that are there. There's there's hundreds of them, and it's not just being able to view them there, I can see all those sessions year-round um, afterwards by watching the recordings, just by, you know, going to the conference. Um, the hands-on stuff and the networking, um, I, I think, is, is the best personally, you know, being able to interact with VMware employees, with vendors, with other uh, users. Um, it is just great because you can get questions answered. Um, if maybe you're looking at a particular product, maybe um, all the vendors are there, so you can see all the vendors under one roof. And, um, you know, get all your questions answered, see the product work. And, um, you know, so to me, VMworld, you know, if you're having trouble getting the okay on it, you know, I, I would do everything I can. Um, and if you only have one training option for the year, I would choose that over, you know, standard classroom training because you get so much more out of all the sessions, out of all the uh, the networking with people and, you know, other things there that, you know, it's just uh, to me it's it's one of the best things you can do to, to kind of improve yourself with VMware. Yeah, yeah I agree. I mean, I think it's good. It's, it was interesting on the um, one of the community uh, roundtables recently. Uh, John Troy was saying apparently the uh, community area uh, at the VMworlds, uh, at least for San Francisco, uh, that's been confirmed, uh, was going to be a lot larger this year. So from uh, sort of like a social networking uh, perspective, a uh, much larger area this year. Um, and, and like like yourself, Eric. I mean, that's that's the one. That's probably the biggest thing I get out of attending these events, um, talking to vendors. Um, you know, uh, other bloggers, meeting, you know, different people just talking about what they're doing in their environments, you know, issues they've come across and, uh, you know, how they've, how they've worked around things. Um, obviously, the lab's absolutely fantastic sessions as well, but uh, yeah. as a complete package, you know, if I had a choice between a training course and attending a, a VMworld, uh, it's a one-horse race in my opinion. And, you know, there's ways to 
kind of make it cheaper too. You know, I mean, if you look around and shop around, there are affordable um, hotels. You know, I found one last year that you know can help you save in costs. Um, if you're a blogger, you have a great opportunity to get a free admission to it. Um, there's a lot of blogger passes that are given out. It's a little bit late this time if you haven't done it yet, but uh, if you're an active blogger, you should definitely contact John Foyer, and um, you know he might be able to get you a blogger pass, a press pass. Um, they have uh, an analyst pass, too, for people who are considered analysts. Um, and there's a lot of vendors giving away um, trips also, so all expense paid. So look around, and um, a lot of the vendors are having little contests or whatever to kind of give away free trips to VMworld. So that's another good opportunity to kind of you know get some of that, those costs down, and you only have to cover travel or whatever, depending on what the vendor covers. Yeah, kind of like um, Jason Bakke had a contest on his blog, and I, I don't remember. It was a very small number of people who, you know, posted comments. It was like 30 or 60 people, and, you know, one of yeah. those people was chosen to go to VMworld completely for free. So, you know, that's, that's yeah, a really cool way. Yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think I saw, like, NetApp and I think a couple other vendors, I think maybe Vision Core and a few others were also offering little contests or whatever to give away, a, some, in some cases, all-expense-paid trip. Um, to go there, so just keep your eyes out, and um, there's definitely some some alternate ways to get there. Yeah, I mean it's really the travel costs that that really increase the price. I mean because the the uh, early admission price to VMworld is what like 13.95, I think. Yeah, something like that, or 12.95, so, yeah. 13.95 around there. Yeah, I mean that compared to a, a typical week long class is you know it's a really small price to pay for a year long yeah. you know training mm -hmm. subscription really. So. Yeah, and like you yeah, say, the biggest uh, expense is really around sort of uh, airfares, you know, because, I, I mean, I paid for myself getting over there last year, um, and I mean, hotel-wise, I found a great place. I had to do a little bit of legwork, but I found this fantastic place up in Chinatown, which was about $50, $55 a night, okay. wow. and that was oh, wow. brilliant. It was free Wi-Fi as well, 15-minute um, walk to the conference center. Uh, it was brilliant. Yeah, really good. So just pay yeah, to shop around, really. If you look at the Marriott, which is really close there, it's I looked this year because uh, speakers get a free night there. Um, it was about 270 a night, which is pretty pretty steep. Um, last year I had stayed right across the street from the Marriott, a place called the Mosser, and um, an older hotel. It was pretty nice inside, but they have these like value rooms that um, they're, they're pretty small, actually a lot smaller. Once I their pictures on their website made it seem bigger, but once you got there, it's, it's definitely small. And they don't have a bathroom in it. There's a shared bathroom down the hall. <laughs> but uh, for, for 90 bucks a night, you know, how how, how actually much time do you spend in your room when you're at VMworld? So if you just need a bed, exactly. go crash, you know. And, you know, it was only about a 10 by 10 room, but, hey, it did it for me, you know. for uh, I was there, you know, hardly at all just for sleeping. That's about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Cool. I hope to see everyone at VMworld this year. It's really the best yeah, conference be on earth. What else we want to hey, talk about? Hey, one thing we were talking about before the show, uh, before the show, there, Eric. I believe you've got a new, uh, a new toy in the, in the form of the uh, the iPhone. There, we were chatting about uh, your iPhone and uh, your experiences with the reception. Obviously, that's quite high, you know high profile in the media at the moment about the uh, you know uh, supposed or, or apparent sort of uh, reception problems around that. So, uh, yeah, yeah, you were telling us uh, about your experiences around that so far. Yeah, all I can say is uh, get a get a case for it. It's uh, definitely well. I, I did a lot of testing on this. You know, I was kind of hesitant. I've been on the waiting list a couple times uh, before I actually uh, decided after the press conference. I said, "Well, Steve said it's all right, so I'm going to go buy it." So, got the phone like probably the day after the press conference, and um, right away at my house, I was having problems with drop calls, with not being able to make calls, and things like that, with calls cutting in and out. 
And my coverage area where I'm at, I'm, I'm in a major populated area, but I typically only get one or two bars. So what I found was, you know, that, that spot of death where you hit that one spot, um, I've tried that in a weak area, and it absolutely kills the, the, the phone, essentially. I, I did the speed test on it, and without touching that spot, I was getting maybe 500K down and 60K up. Touching that spot, I was getting 2K down and 0K up. So that, that, that weakness That's a big is very obvious. Um, once I put the case on it, it's been great because you don't have any contact with the antenna at all. And what I've found is if you're in a five-bar area, um, the, the, the antenna weakness generally isn't really obvious. I, I did speed tests on a five-bar area touching that spot. And it was exact same download speeds and upload speeds as without touching that spot. So I would, you know, highly recommend if you're in an area or even traveling to an area, not every area is five bars, to get a case so you're basically not touching that antenna, you know, anywhere on the side. And um, you definitely will enjoy the phone a lot more once you're not having uh, the frustration of drop calls and, you know, bad download speeds and upload speeds and that. So but overall, a great phone. I, I really like it a lot. And, um, you know, just did I, cover did, did, did I hear, did I hear right that uh, Apple were actually giving away cases? You could go into the Apple store and choose a case to uh, well, put on your iPhone? That's true, but you can't get them at the store. I went to the store, and they told me um, you can't do it here. They don't even have cases, actually. They didn't have hardly any cases at all for the, uh, the iPhone 4. I'd actually buy an iPhone 3GS case originally. Um, what they're doing is online, and they haven't uh, – while well, they announced it last week, you can't do it yet. They said later this week um, they're supposed to – you go to their website, fill out their form, probably put in your serial number, and then you could pick from uh, – Bumpers are in short supply, so I think they were doing to give you a variety of choices to be able to choose a case for it. Um, so yeah, so the bumper, just to clarify, the bumper is the official case for, for, for the iPhone. That's the one that basically only covers the side. It's a real kind of slim oh, case. Right. It just covers the side. Mm-hmm. Basically, covers the antenna, the whole antenna, so you're not touching the antenna. So, um, so probably in the next day or two, probably by tomorrow, they'll be it'll be up on their website where you can go and actually pick a free case for it. Um, I spent the money because I didn't want to wait. There's probably going to be such a huge demand initially once they put that out there that you know it's going to be hard to you, know, you have to wait and it's, you know they might be sold out. So so uh, get a case and this phone will be great. So it's going to be interesting. I wonder how long before. I mean, I wonder whether Apple are going to change the design of their antenna. And if so, are they going to rush sort of like a uh, an iPhone 4.5 out sort of sooner rather than later? I wonder with a new redesigned antenna. Yeah, who knows? I, I so think it's now that it's been identified, and no matter what they say about all phones having this issue, it, it's it's definitely a lot more issue when you can touch the antenna. You know, the def grip is one thing where you're kind of kind of blocking the antenna, but when you're actually touching the antenna itself, you know that that really I think degrades the signal even more. So, I I would say that probably in the next generation of the phone, they will do something differently. Maybe they'll code it or something, put a coding on there. They were talking that the free case offer is only good to September. Um, then they reevaluate things. So that almost makes it sounds like they're going to do something like maybe um, with a future release, maybe towards the end of the year, what, by coating the the outside of the phone, so you actually can't get contact with the antenna. You know, maybe a, a clear plastic coat on it or something like that, that um, basically protects the antenna from being touched. So we'll see. Well, that's and interesting. We'll you mentioned about the 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 the, the, um, the, the coating on that because the white ones, uh, the, the white iPhone fours up. I'd heard that uh, they've been delayed because of a, uh, a coating issue, apparently, with the, with the white color. Um, so yeah, that's delayed the, uh, the, the white iPhones being released. They can't get the paint to stick properly to the glass. That was their whole problem, was getting it in a way oh, that right. was 
they didn't want to make it too thick, and they were trying to get just the right mix of paint to, to make it so it actually adheres good and provides good coverage in that. So you think they would have done this a long time ago before they released it, but um, supposedly at the end of July, which is coming up quick, um, they'll start building. And supposedly the factory is putting out the white ones, doesn't really have uh, the capability to produce them in a huge volume. So they'll be coming out and dribbling out, and they'll probably be constrained for at least a few months um, trying to get a hold of one, the, the rare white iPhone. Uh, once they're finally released, yeah. So my wife wants one, so we're, she's waiting for that. Well, interesting stuff because I just ordered one. My my order's in process right now, so I'm interested to hear about your experiences. Have either of you guys used the um, Pocket Cloud application from Wise? Uh, Not yet. No, I, I, I looked at it on the iPad. Yeah, but um, like and it looks yeah, so great. I heard it was the best RDP one out there because those are RDP too. Uh, I heard it was the best on the iPad. It's way more usable than on this tiny screen. So yeah. Simon, you got it? Yeah, I've got it here. I mean, I, I mean, I've got to say, I, I, I don't want to come across as a Mac fanboy, so I'm definitely not. <laughs> but I've got to say, the iPad. I thought it was a device I was going to buy. Two weeks later, I, you know, I had to have one because all the Everyone else had one. They were raving about it. So I thought, right, I've got to, got to buy my own one, see for myself. And I thought, it's going to be up on eBay. I'm going to be selling it in two weeks. But I've got to say, it's probably the best gadget I've bought in the last couple of years. And um, I'm always a little bit embarrassed to say that. But uh, I find it absolutely excellent. So I use it for so many th- different things each day. But, um, yeah, so the, the, the Wi-Fi, I shall hold this up. I don't know if you can see that. Uh, let's start it. Absolutely fantastic. Unfortunately, uh, I'm not connected to the VPN network at the moment, but um, oh, okay. if I was, uh, I've got a selection of different PCs. Uh, for example, this is my vCenter uh, server at home. Literally, you know, I, I can be sitting on the couch downstairs, outside, sitting in bed type of thing, just through a touch of a button there, the way it goes. And uh, if I was connected to the network, uh, obviously I'm not at the moment, uh, yeah, yeah, within seconds I'm up and running. Um, and the, the, the touch controls are on it, very intuitive. And uh, I don't know what it's like on the iPhone, but definitely the size of the screen on the iPad there, um, definitely, you know, of a decent size, a very usable size. Um, so that was yeah. one thing that worried me. I thought, man, yeah. even even on an iPad, is the screen still going to be so small to use? But, uh, yeah, I, I, I use it quite regularly and uh, find it very good. Yeah. I I'd like to see the VMware come out. Um, with an official client for the iPad or the iPhone where you could actually, you know, they have that, that web-based one now that you can do that for the mobile phones and that. But an iPad, I think, is a, is a great platform for, you know, maybe not a full vSphere client, but at least some kind of, you know, taking that, that management app that they had for the iPhone for mobile phones and maybe expand that to the iPad, which is a great platform, I think, for being able to, you know, to manage your host and environment. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely very good. I mean, I, I use it for lots of different things. I mean, I use it for um, PowerPoint presentations as well. Uh, There's sort of like an equivalent application. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I use it every day for work as well. Uh, so definitely give them a value for money out of it. Cool. David, do you got one too, David? Or? Yeah, yeah, I've got an iPad, and I use the uh, Pocket Cloud app all the time, and I was really impressed. I mean, it connects to uh, VMware View using PC over IP and RDP, um, and then I was really impressed with the, the mouse and the keyboard functionality. I mean, the mouse, yeah. I can right-click, left-click. I can do Control-Alt-Delete. I can do, you know, all these weird Windows keys and, and actually, you know, resize Windows using this on-screen mouse on the iPad. Um, so, you know, I use it just about every night sitting on the couch or in bed or whatever, doing remote control of, you know, a lot of Windows servers. Uh, it's oh, a very cool. functional application. So. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. 
Definitely very useful. And I, I've been mainly using mine for games, so <laughs> a lot of great games you could play on those things. So, uh, likewise, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not, I must admit, it's not all not, not all work on the iPad for me either. Um, yeah. So, Eric, what's, what's the latest book update? When's when's your book coming out, and what's it called again? Uh, book is out right at the end of August, right before VMworld, called Maximum vSphere, available for pre-order now on uh, Amazon and I think all the other places. Um, it'll be in all the electronic formats. It'll be in Kindle, iPad, you know, all those electronic formats. Um, so yeah, basically, just a few more weeks, probably about a month, it'll be out. It'll be at the VMworld bookstore, available there. Um, me and Simon will probably be uh, signing book signings in that. You know, Simon did two chapters in it, the performance chapter and the home lab chapter. So awesome. a lot of good stuff in there. I had fun writing this one, and um, I think people will find it, uh, you know, a really good book, interesting book, a lot of great information in it. Yeah, it was good fun, and you know, to, to work on that. I've got to say, it was, uh, yeah, it was a lot of, it was definitely a lot of work, but definitely worthwhile. I mean, um, I had the final review for my two chapters come through recently, so it was good to, to read through that. Um, hope it's well received. Um, it was, I definitely really enjoyed doing it. It was great working with Eric as well. A lot of fun. So, uh, yeah. Well, sure. awesome. I'm going to have to pre-order my copy and see if I can get you guys to sign it at VMworld. Sure thing. All right. Yeah, no problem. All right. Do you guys have any other topics you want to cover on today's VChat? Well, I think that covers it for this one. Yeah, uh, me too. Um, so I, I, I get to go home now. Um, go home and have dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Not me. Back to work. 